Thank you, Mr. Mike. It's always a pleasure to hear Mike, isn't it? Man, why do we only sing Christmas songs during Christmas season? Okay, that's right, because they're Christmas songs. That makes sense. I've noticed that there are many people visiting with us this morning. Number one, I hope you've been welcomed and encouraged. Uh, but also, um, and many of you have kids, they are welcome in this church service. So uh, we are happy to have them here. We are happy to have you here. Um, last week, Neil uh, continued this look at the season of Advent. But we're looking at it a little differently this year. We're looking at it through the lens of psalmic passages, psalmic chapters from the book of Psalms. Uh, and last week, we were taking a closer look at the suffering Messiah. For many, it was a powerful but somber kind of message. And to focus on something like that, you see a closer glimpse of yourself, don't you? What he had to endure because of who we are, so that we could have right relationship with God. Um, the Jewish people in the scripture, longing, waiting for the Messiah, not realizing Christ was and is that Messiah, uh, we await now... Like Neil said, actively, not passively waiting, uh, but on mission for his second coming. Um, So where are we right now? Well, we are between the two comings. One, his incarnation, and second, his return. And what do we do in that middle time? Well, many of us find ourselves in the wilderness. We all will eventually, suffering in the wilderness. We will not live void of pain in this world. But we serve a Savior who never leaves the boat, who is notorious for being among his people, the presence of God felt by followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And last week we reflected on a Savior who died in our stead, uh, and we looked at what it means to say and ask aloud, did Jesus die for me? And in Matthew chapter 27, we see an amazing thing happen. We see Jesus quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross, quoting King David as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write out the Psalms, many Psalms. The new Adam, Jesus, quoting a king of men in the lineage of the old Adam. You see, Jesus is a Messiah who understands where we are and doesn't just give us power or strength to obey the mission, doesn't just hand us the tools necessary. He is what is necessary. He is the strength and power necessary to not only survive our time here awaiting our Savior's return, but to thrive, to live a life that is glorifying to Him. He is that strength, and here we are in the here and now, submitting, learning submission. Many of us don't feel like we are. The suffering Messiah who now, as Russ said, sits on the right hand of the Father. Correct concepts are crucial. Um, Wrong concepts can be fatal. There's an example of this often used in 1865 when President Abraham Lincoln was shot at the theater. Uh, The doctors had the wrong concept. They believed it was beneficial to drain some blood from an injured person. And so the president, who had already lost a lot of blood through his bullet wound, lost even more blood because the doctors were acting out this wrong concept. Marriage... A lot of examples of wrong concepts you can do in that. One being walking into a door and saying, Honey, I'd love to help you with the kids, but I've been working all day and you've just been with the kids. This proves that wrong concepts can be fatal. 
More so than even the Abraham Lincoln example. Nearly fatal, fatal, very dangerous to get things wrong like that. This is not only true physically. These have been the examples we've used thus far, but it's spiritually true. Having wrong spiritual concepts of the things we shout out, the things we proclaim to believe, they can lead to what the Bible calls a second death. Eternal separation from God. Having the wrong idea about Jesus is dangerous. It is absolutely essential that you think correctly about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's essential. It is a first-tier issue. Many of us in here, we're not, we don't agree on everything, but they are somewhat minor things. First-tier issues, who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, what happens in salvation? These are first tier, must get this right conversations. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees had some wrong concepts regarding the Messiah or Christ. Messiah, by the way, comes from the Hebrew word meaning anointed one. Christ means the same thing um, in the Greek. They thought correctly that the promised Messiah would be a physical descendant of David. So the Pharisees were half right. Okay, They thought that the Messiah was going to be a physical descendant of David. That's what they had studied. So they were, they were right about that. But they thought incorrectly, thinking that the Messiah would merely be a great man who would reign on a physical throne like David. They did not realize that he would be the eternal God, second person of the Trinity. The Pharisees desperately needed to change their concept of the Messiah that they were awaiting. So the question remains for us this morning as we take a look into Psalm 110. This is the most important question for you to ever answer, guys. What do you think about Christ? You may think there are more important questions out there. Whom should I marry? How should I raise my kids? What career should I pursue? Should I stay with the career I have now or try something new? How can I have a happy marriage? Some of us are asking that question within the first couple years of marriage. Others are asking it maybe in 30 or 40 years. How do I keep this happy marriage? How can I know the will of God? Look, these are important questions, but they are secondary because the answers to them hinge on the answer to a one very important question. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Once you've answered that question, what you've done is you've settled who is the Lord in your life. And once you've settled that question, it's not like life is just miraculously easier but all other questions will find resolution under the authority of God's holy, perfect, inspired word. See, the whole thing is faith in Christ must be grounded in knowledge of Jesus' person. Psalm 110 answers the question, who is Jesus the Messiah? David tells us three titles Jesus is, not was is. Jesus the Messiah is the king, he is the eternal priest, and he is the future warrior judge of the earth. If you are able, will you please take this time to stand with me as we read the entirety of Psalm 110, which is seven verses here. The Lord says to my Lord, let me say that again, the Lord 
says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May we always remember the powers in the word of God. You may be seated. So few things right off the bat about Psalm 110, okay? Few things. One, this chapter is totally messianic. It's totally messianic. It does not speak at all of David, but of David's Lord. The author is David. So this passage is not about David. He is the messenger. It is a prophetic passage. Written 1,000 years before Christ, and it only contains seven verses, but man alive, they are packed with Christology. They are packed with the answer to the greatest question. And number three, Psalm 110 happens to be the Old Testament passage most frequently used and quoted in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit who inspired the New Testament writers thought this psalm to be pretty important, so we probably should too. Today we are going to look at the three titles, real easy, three titles given to Christ in Psalm 110 and three ways we as a church respond to those titles. By the way, when I say titles of Christ, do not confuse that with the Trinity. Okay, we have three persons, one spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There was never a time where God the Father wasn't. There was never a time where God the Son wasn't. There was never a time where God the Spirit wasn't. All right? So that's the three persons in one make up our perfect triune God. This chapter is about the three titles of which God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is given so that we understand exactly who he is. First thing, number one, Jesus, the Messiah, is the king of the earth. He's the king of the earth. Verses, you kind of get this in verses one through three. If you look down at your Bibles in Psalm 110 there. Right off the bat, you see this first line. The Lord says to my Lord. By the way, one of my all-time favorite passages in all the Bible is in John 17, where you get to be a part of that high priestly prayer. You get to be ushered in to a conversation that's happening between the Trinity. Jesus, the Son of God, is talking to his Father by way of the Holy Spirit, and you get to hear, you get to listen to what it's all about. And it's just an incredible passage. He's praying for us. He's praying for future believers in that. The same thing makes me think about Psalm 110, verse 1. Because what you need to understand is, the Lord says to my Lord, it's important to understand who's talking to who here. Um, let me give you a reference point. Matthew 22 Okay, Matthew 22, we see uh, starting verse 41. Um, Jesus turns the tables on the Pharisees, right? So what were the Pharisees always trying to do? Trip Jesus up, embarrass Jesus, make him look like a fool in front of his followers, right? They wanted the power back. Well, Psalm 110, verse 1, there is a conversation between two members of the Godhead. 
Look down at verse 1. Is your first Lord in all caps? That's Yahweh. That's God the Father. You see how he's speaking to David's Lord? That's not David. That's Adonai. That's the Messiah. Verses 1 through 3 reveal to us the person, the position, and the power of the Messiah King. We see the person of the Messiah King is both God and man. And we get to see that worked out as Jesus talks to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, verse 41. Look down at Matthew 22, verse 41. Keep your hand kind of in Psalm 110. But this is incredible. To correct their wrong concept of who the Messiah was, what we mentioned earlier, Jesus asks them a crucial question where he quotes this psalm. He asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Matthew twenty-two forty-two. When they correctly answered, remember, the Pharisees knew that the Messiah was going to be in the lineage of King David. They knew that. So when they correctly answered that he would be the son of David, Jesus then quotes Psalm 110.1 and said, great. He didn't really say great. That's me saying great, right? Like, okay, got it. You got that part. If David then calls him Lord, L, lowercase o-r-d, how is he his son? See, what you're kind of getting here in the culture, too, is there's an extra little jab there. Because in, in this culture, son could never be greater than the father. You guys would love that if that was still happening. Right? Like, son could never be greater than the father. It's ridiculous to think that. He was showing them that their thinking was inadequate on this most crucial question. They had to see, as well as we do, that the Messiah was not only David's son, but also David's Lord. What does this mean? Our Messiah was not and is not merely human. He was both God and man. He's introducing them to this idea that the Messiah is the eternal God. So we have that person of the Messiah King is both God and man. By the way, some people use the term fully God, fully man. You're welcome to do that. I like truly God, truly man. Just leaves out all that nasty mathematics and percentages. How can two things be full? Truly God, truly man. All right? He's both God and man. Very important part of our theology. Also, not only is the person in that, the position of the Messiah King is that of exaltation to the right hand of God. Remember that VH1 show, Where Are They Now? Where is Jesus now? At the right hand of God. Psalm 110.1 looks to the present time, looks to today. Where is Jesus? Jesus the Messiah is risen and ascended, Lord over all, at the right hand of the Father. We see that again in verse 1. Sit at my right hand. This refers to the position of Christ after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. What happened after that? The Holy Spirit poured out to the people. His ascension into heaven and the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit were positive proof that God had made the Jesus whom they crucified both Lord over all creation, and Christ, the long-awaited King. We see that in Acts 2.36. We also see this perfect position of Christ in John 1, 1 through 4. Person, position, and power, right? So the power of the Messiah King is now exercised through what? His people. Exercised through His people. Jesus now rules in the midst of His enemies... Through his people. Pictured poetically here as an army of priests in the song. In other words, it's this church. 
is the beauty of holiness in the lives of Christ's followers that attracts and conquers God's enemies. We want to know what to do as believers so often, don't we? We want to know what to do. Like, what's the, uh, we get the idea, be good, what's the step? Like, what's next? I need something tangible that I can grab onto. Why do we constantly just brush aside obedience? Just be obedient to the laws of God, to the God you claim to love. Why are we moving past that? Pastor, I get obedience, I get it. But you don't understand my exact problem. What else is there? Look, obedience to Christ is our greatest weapon. As servants in God's army, it is our greatest weapon in warfare is to live a life loyal and allegiant to the King Jesus. So our first point here is Jesus is the King of the earth, both the Son of David and David's Lord. So, church, what do we do with Jesus as King? Since Jesus is King, we should submit to His Lordship willingly, not begrudgingly. Not dragging our feet, but willingly submit to his lordship. And, and we need to be clear that submitting to Christ's lordship is not an option for like a few really committed, over-the-top, gung-ho type of Christians. Like, I'm one of those middle-of-the-ground Christians where I get what you're saying and I'm just going to kind of ride this title out, but I'll let the drill Jesus freaks be really obedient. This is a call to anyone who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior. Be radically obedient. We are, and, and the problem, the, where we get tripped up is that we are great with Jesus as Savior. That's great. Jesus as Savior, we're like, I'll sign whatever. That's awesome. That keeps me out of hell. Awesome. Jesus as Savior, great. Jesus as Lord, uh, that's me having to give up a lot of control of my life. That's me having to get up control in areas that I've had control of for years. I'm not going to be as committed. I'll be good enough to get in, but there are definitely going to be parts in my life that I hold on to. A feeling of separation from Christ, by the way, will occur in the lives of those who are reluctant to surrender all aspects of their lives to King Jesus. You will feel distant. You will feel separated from a king that's there. And, and one thing is we like to think that Satan and his minions and our flesh, we like to think all of that is there to isolate us from the faith family, isolate us from other believers. Well, it is, that's true, but guess what? It also seeks to isolate us, to lie to us in times of pain and suffering in order to convince us that God's not in control of everything likes to isolate us not only from other believers, but from the concept that God is completely and totally sovereign. And if you have never heard this before, let this be the first time. Our Savior either presides over everything or He presides over nothing at all. He is Savior King. There's nothing, and this may be hard for some of you to hear, so I want to make sure it's said in a gracious way. But there are some things in your life that are really tough that you're going through. It's been a tough ministry week. Some of those things you're like, there's no way God had a part in this. Can I just tell you, there's nothing that's happened in your life that God hasn't allowed. For it to happen, he had to allow it. He's there. 
He's in control. Even when you don't feel like he's there. He's there. But he's not only present. He's presiding over it. That's the power of our king. And you'll notice this the more and more you study Christianity. The more and more you study your Bible. You'll see you grow through submission. You grow closer to Christ through the more you submit to him. The more you give away. Not the more you keep. But the more you surrender, the closer you get. Saul's become Paul's not by following ten easy steps to success. Saul's become Paul's by getting kicked off their horses and blinded on their ways to fulfill their fleshly desires. That's the power of the king. In the same way, our spiritual growth comes as the Lord reveals to you more of your selfish ways and more of his righteousness. Have you ever noticed in times where it really gets hard, you think it'd be easier to go to the word, but it's actually harder? It's like, I don't want anything to do with the word of God right now. I'm suffering. I don't want to see the places I need to give up control. I don't want to see myself as selfish. I don't want to see myself as in need. I'm striving here. I'm trying here. But if you think that way, then you're only depending on yourself. And you can't do it. Sovereign King can. He is the power. He's not just giving you the power. He is the power. Full submission is the goal to a sovereign king. But he's not only king. He's eternal priest. It's a very important title or characteristic in this passage. Number two, the Messiah is the eternal priest of the earth. Notice the word eternal. He's not just priest of the earth. He is eternal priest of the earth. You'll see that if you look down at verse 4. Verse 4 records the second statement of the Lord, Yahweh, to David's Lord, the Messiah. So what is it that God wants us to see here? That he has declared his Messiah, Adonai, Jesus, to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Some of us are like, who is Melchizedek? Why is that thrown in there? That does not sound like an appealing baby name. There's no reason for me to know this. I'm going to trip you all up. If I have a son, his name is Melchizedek. You heard it here first. I'm so thankful God sees the heart. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is mentioned actually only three times in all of Scripture. Actually, not three times, three books. Genesis, Psalm, and the book of Hebrews. If you've ever done a lengthy study on the book of Hebrews, you've heard Melchizedek several times. His name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. Now, so who he is, he was the king of Salem in Genesis. He had a relationship with Abraham. And when you're reading that, he seems like he kind of comes out of nowhere. There's not much background to him. He refreshes Abraham with bread and wine after Abraham returns from battle. By the way, this is in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. He blesses Abraham, and then he receives a tithe of Abraham's spoils. And he is called then a priest of God Most High. That's his reference. What does a priest do? A priest acts as a mediator between God and man. Melchizedek stood between God and Abraham to confer God's blessing onto Abraham and to receive the tithes from Abraham to present to God. That was his role. Hebrews 7 brings in Melchizedek to show that Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is superior in that unlike Jewish kings who couldn't act as priests and Jewish priests who couldn't act like kings, Jesus is both priest and king. He reigns. This is so important. You understand this. It's the character of your Savior. 
Jesus reigns at the right hand of God and at the same time mediates or intercedes for us because of what he has accomplished and what we could never accomplish. Jesus acts as a king priest once and for all, like Melchizedek did for Abraham, but with Christ is permanent. It took. Jesus is superior because he's an eternal priest who offers an even better covenant through which we may draw near to God himself. Jesus is superior in that he didn't need to offer daily sacrifices for his own sin before he offered sacrifices for the people. He didn't need to do all that stuff that the Levitical priest did. The bottom line is Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the only way, guys. He is the only way people can draw near to God and right reconciliation. We need a mediator for right relationship with God. And we have one in Jesus. Do you know what this means? We don't need a human mediator. That veil is torn, man. We do not need a human mediator. We have Christ. He is our eternal priest. David has shown that to think correctly about Christ, we must know that he is the king of the earth. He is the eternal priest of the earth. But he isn't only reigning. He isn't only in control. He is there for us on our behalf. Neil put it this way. Jesus is both the savior king and the suffering servant. Jesus is both the victim and the victor. We serve a king who has both those roles. What does eternal priest mean for us? Since Jesus is priest, we should appropriate his mediation gladly. Jesus is the mediator, the go-between you and God. When you sin, which we will every day, you have an advocate with the Father who is there pleading his blood as the just satisfaction for the penalty of your sins. Church, you no longer need to feel condemned because God is your eternal priest. When the enemy accuses you, and he will, because his goal is to devour you. You see, his fate has been set. He has been beaten, but he will someday be slain. So his goal here is to destroy the church. When you submit to Christ, you place a target on your back as a threat to his enemies. How do we overcome this? By pleading the blood of Jesus. By pleading the blood of Jesus. Jesus' priesthood also means that he is your access to the Father's presence. And even more, Jesus is interceding before the throne for us. We see this in Hebrews 7. We see this in Romans 8. Think of that. Jesus is praying for you. How good does it feel to have family members pray for you? Like, man, there was nothing better growing up than my grandmother calling me going, I'm praying for you because I knew good and well she was praying for me. Like, it was not one of those, as we pass, I'll pray for you. It was like she's on her knees at night praying hours over her kids. Like, I love that. And that's a great feeling. It's an awesome feeling that people who come to Amelia Baptist Church can understand that there are faith families There are Sunday school classes that they get together, think about them, and pray over them when they need prayer. Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night is a list of people that we vocally, openly pray for. But you know what's even better? 
Jesus praying for you. Jesus praying for you is so much better than that. If I could hear, this is what Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish minister of the past century said, once wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, the distance makes no difference. My Savior is praying for me. This is what it means to have Jesus as our high priest. Lastly, the Messiah is not only king of the earth, eternal priest of the earth. He is the future judge of the earth. You can also use the term warrior judge. And almost every commentary I have when it got to this point, they use the term warrior. And judge is also there. But can I explain why I connect? It's more than just because warrior judge sounds really cool. The scene, when we're reading the verses here, 5 through 7 in Psalm 110, the scene shifts from God's throne to the battlefield. The scene has moved on from Hebrews to really Revelation 19. As we await the second coming of Christ, when he will forcibly, listen, this is our Savior, not some sissified version of Jesus, who's just always just calm and petting a lamb, and he's blonde and European for some reason. Right? He's just this all the time. He floats. He doesn't walk. He floats. No. It's not the scripture I'm reading. Jesus, this Jesus, this second coming of Christ, forcibly subdue his enemies and establish his kingdom rule. And this is what Advent is all about, actually. Not just that he came to earth, but that he's coming again. Psalm 110 verse 7 is really a poetic way of making the point that the Messiah will carry out this judgment swiftly. Here's where we really need to hear and pay attention. None will escape his judgment. None. You see, the reason why I go with warrior judge over just judge is because this isn't Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown that we're talking about here. Right? When you think of judge in today's world, you're like... Up, well, he's held by man-made constructs. The judge can only do so much. The judge is, you know, having to wade through three branches of government and a lot of red tape. That's not the case with our Lord. It's guaranteed that this judge continues his pursuit until what? All of his enemies are slain. Think about what that means in your personal life. Because an enemy of yours, if you belong to King Jesus, is an enemy of his. Then he lifts up his head in victory, but not just partial victory, total victory. We need to understand that while we right now are in this time of grace when God is withholding his wrath on sinners, a day of judgment is coming when everyone opposed to the Lord and his Christ will be crushed. That fact should crush us. We should be heartbroken over that. So part of us that loves justice, we're like, yeah, God's going to have his day. Every day is his day. He's won the battle. The mentality we need to get behind is, how busy are you talking about the gospel to people who don't believe it? Everyone who is his enemy will be crushed. To think correctly about Jesus Christ, you must understand that he is the future judge of the earth. What does that mean for his church right now? Since Jesus is judge, we should avoid his judgment fearfully. 
Since we live in the day of God's grace, it's so easy to put off the coming of Christ. Are you awaiting it or are you putting it off? Perhaps someone here right now, even while I'm saying this, is thinking, I still have time. I don't see God judging me or anyone else right now. So what's the hurry? Besides, isn't God a God of love? And I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. God wouldn't judge me, would he? That's a wrong and fatal concept. Please don't think like that. Number one, don't compare yourselves with others who call themselves Christians. Compare yourselves with the perfect scripture. Our regard for the opinions of others can really lead to more idolatry and unmet expectations than they can godly living. And number two, our psalm here, as well as the rest of Scripture, shows that although God's judgment is delayed, when it comes, you can, get, you can take it to the bank. It will be swift and certain. Last week, a uh, video was released online. I think the thing already has like 43 million views. But it was of this engineer. And like scientists put this video everywhere because they were just like, look how cool engineering is. And uh, this guy had just gotten really upset at people stealing packages from other people's doorsteps. And so what he does is he creates a box that looks like a package, like a normal package, but inside there is a glitter bomb. And I don't mean like a bomb where people are losing limbs, like it's not hurting anyone, it really, but it just has this mechanism that's timed that gives them about 10 minutes after they've stolen the package. And it just whirls glitter out of it automatically like that just in 10 minutes it's on a timer and i mean when i say glitter goes everywhere it goes everywhere and it's like that glitter that just sticks to you and like 10 years later you're get, trying to get it off your skin like i don't know what we why we made a fascination with like little pieces of glass but you know that don't move but we did and then we attached it to girls liking it and now i have three and it's just gonna be a whole life of glitter just so much glitter in my life. Far much more glitter than I thought what I would have in my life. And my wife is for it, which that's not yoked, you know? It's not supportive. And so the best part is, on these boxes, he attached cameras. So you're able to, like, through the video, see everybody's reaction to getting sprayed with glitter, like, on their person and in their, on their couch. It gets on this one guy's entire couch, and you're just like, you love it. You love it when it happens because there's a part of you that goes, yeah, don't steal stuff. I love that it happens to people who steal stuff. That's great. That's justice. I'm all about justice. God's judgment, you may think for a while that you're getting away with your sin, but reckoning is coming. You may think the drive's been good for about 10 minutes. No one's following me. This package is as good as mine. As Christians, we sometimes wonder why God doesn't take care of those wicked people on the spot. I know I think that. The reason is God delays his judgment so that people can come to repentance in him. Praise our merciful God. Because for a second, if you don't think that you were a victim of that same patience, that same mercy... Man, you've missed the entire concept. We've benefited from a merciful God. We've benefited from a gracious, forgiving God. It's full of second chances to His people. 
But even though God's judgment is delayed because of His grace, it is certain, and it will hit suddenly and swiftly when it comes. But there is good news. There is good news. Right now, there are many of you I know personally who are facing difficult, tough circumstances. Right now, you may feel like maybe your enemies have defeated you. I just tell you, do not fear. For God is working to bring all things under Christ's feet. And his kingdom will one day be plain to all. I want each one here personally to consider this question that Jesus asks the Pharisees. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's David's son. But even more, guess what? He's our Lord. He's God's son. Who's your Lord? And the answer to that question, what does that really mean for your life to understand that Jesus is your Lord? Jonathan Edwards once said, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. In other words, how you think about things determines how you live. It is of utmost importance to think correctly about Jesus the Messiah. We'll close with this. I used to know it was uh, Christmas when, when mom brought out the nativity scenes. And I do mean plural. There were like six nativity scenes. In case we didn't get the idea from one of them, we had five more examples around the house. There were a few things that made it feel like Christmas. You know, the baking was on. Um, and then the the TV scenes, dad yelling from the roof that one of the bulbs doesn't work. There were just some really beautiful things uh, that made it feel like Christmas. I remember one time I'd like to fiddle with the nativity scenes. I remember as a small child always trying to take baby Jesus out of the manger. Don't know why, unregenerate, pagan, uh, probably to hide him or something. But you never could on those old nativity scenes because Jesus was like gorilla glued into the manger. It's like they made it, they made it knowing kids were going to try to take Jesus and put him somewhere, you know? It's like one of the small, so he's always attached to the manger. So like for years, for years, uh, when I was young, I thought of Jesus. I couldn't stop thinking about the manger. It's always about the manger. In the past week, you've heard words like Syria, Afghanistan, shut down, communist China, tsunami, ISIS, goodness. It feels like the light is shining on everything but what it's supposed to be shining on right now. Let it be known, this is a fact from the word of God, all of these things fall under the authority of our sovereign king, Jesus, our eternal priest, our warrior judge. He is in control of all of it. Right now, the altar is still open for belief and repentance. We are still in that place of God's grace and mercy. His enemies have been ultimately defeated, but they will someday be slain. But right now, sin and pain are active and we feel it in a fallen world. Remember though, and this is truth that you can take to the bank forever. Psalm 110, 1-7, on our most confused, chaotic, insane, God's not there days, he is still 100% in control. Jesus is no longer the baby in the manger. He is no longer the child learning in the temple. He is no longer a carpenter's son. He is no longer dead on the cross. He is no longer locked in the tomb. At this very moment, we serve a Savior who lives, he loves, and he reigns. He reigns, and he is coming again.
May you pray with me, church. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, we get to talk to you. In that talking, in that praying, as we approach you in reverence and awe, you are not a buddy, you are a king. And you love us. And you are a friend to us. Father God, we will not submit to you outside of your power. We must submit to you. And we are asking for a work that only God can do. We are asking for the power from the eternal priest. We want to draw near to God through Jesus' blood. There is nothing like being set free from the bondage of sin and alive in the love of Christ our King, Emmanuel. May we be set free from the chains that bind us, the chains of selfishness, hate, greed, envy, lust, pride. May we continue to devote our lives to meditating on the promises of a good, good God. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Church.